Welcome to the Multifamily Five, where industry experts provide raw information about how they are achieving success in the current market conditions. And now, your host, Dallas-based real estate broker, Mark Allen. And welcome to the Multifamily Five. It's Mark Allen your host. And for those that have not listened or maybe new to the Multifamily Five, we ask five questions typically um, about multifamily, how owners, operators, vendors are uh, helping owners create value in this environment. However, today we're going to do a roundtable discussion uh, with two of my members from Greystone, Todd Franks on the investment sales side of Executive Managing Director and trip going from our loan originations team. And gentlemen, I'll let you introduce uh, yourselves, but we'll start with Todd. Todd, how you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Yeah. So if you um, can just share your story and introduce yourself, and then we'll hop over to trip. Sure. Um, I started in brokerage in 2000, so, um, and uh, opened up. Uh, an independent office originally with uh, Sperry Van Ness in 2014. And then we did a joint venture with Greystone uh, last year in 2019, almost a, a year ago to the day. Um, we, like I said, been in the business for 20 years. So I did see the last recession. Uh, so hopefully I'll be able to, to add some value of what I saw the lenders doing during that time and the operators and how things played out. Great. Uh, thanks so much. And Trip. Yeah, Mark, agreed. Thanks for having us on. Uh, my name's Trip Going. I've been with Greystone for a little bit over five years. Uh, TCU graduate, uh, live in Tarrant County still, hard to get away. I was always told as I was coming up in the business that I had never seen anything like the 07 to 09 recession. And so I'm hoping that this still holds true when this is all done. Um, hoping to give some insight on what we're seeing on the capital market side this week um, and kind of how we're seeing changes hourly almost. Great. And Trip and the rest of our team in 2019 closed over $14 billion in loan volume. So we're doing a lot of volume, primarily Fannie Freddie, um, also the number one HUD lender in the country, and we offer CMBS. Um, but with that, so let's start let's start on financing or the topic of financing and really new loans for deals in process. Um, Trip, there's a lot going on right now. This uh, capital markets is really choppy right now. So um, changing hour to hour, what are you seeing? Um, and specifically today, what's, what's the big news today? And then kind of what are you seeing in general? Yeah, today I would say the big news as of March 27th is that spreads have come in a lot from where they opened up this week you know on monday we had spreads about 180 to 100 bips wide of what we saw last friday and i think we were just waiting on the market to stabilize and waiting for the fed to really release their plan on how they're going to buy those securities from fannie freddie and jenny may um and now that they've announced that today is the first day that they'll buy a billion in securities, I think <clears throat> spreads are coming in a little bit, realizing that there's going to be some liquidity in the market. Um, other than spreads coming down, I think the biggest note is Fannie has announced that they are going to start escrowing 
debt service for 12 to 18 months for full leverage deals. Uh, those, those escrows are going to be held for six months and then a consecutive two quarters with hitting the amortizing debt service coverage that's set out in your loan documents. So for a full leverage deal, it's a minimum of a year, a maximum of three years, um, and it can be drawn on, but it has to be proven out. And those guidelines are laid out in your loan documents. Okay. That's principal, interest, taxes, and insurance? Principal and interest are held that way. They are going to start escrowing taxes, insurance, and replacement reserves as well um, for 12 months at closing, even if it's able to be waived. So, for example, I've got a lower leverage deal in process right now, and we were right up to the rate lock process, but they came back. Fannie announced this Wednesday, and they've let us know that even though we had the authority to waive taxes, insurance, and replacement reserves, they're going to require a escrow for principal and interest, taxes, insurance, and replacement reserves. Note that for a smaller or rather lower leverage loan, um, the escrows are going to be lower. So this is 65% LTV loan, and they've set the escrows at six months instead of 12 months. Okay. And what about leverage? Can I ask you Say again. What about max leverage and interest only? Are there any changes there? Uh, as far as interest only has gone, <clears throat> we haven't seen any explicit changes. You know, both the agencies still have their exit test that they like to hit. Um, I foresee when we get our hard quotes, we may get dialed back from what we have been accustomed to seeing two to three to four years occasionally. There may be some pushback, um, but as long as we hit the quotes, we're still quoting it and letting the agencies tell us that that's what they're not willing to do. As far as full leverage on transactions that are acquisitions, we can still get up to 80% LTV, assuming that um, NOI covers our debt service. For what we're looking at, normally a 125, uh, but where we have seen some difference is on cash out refinance. Finances. Both agencies are looking a little harder at cash out refinances right now, especially Freddie Mac on cash. They're saying on the large loan side that they want to have <clears throat> minimum a 130 debt service cover. And typically when we go full leverage, like I mentioned, we have a 125. So that additional five bips is going to have some impact as to what loan dollars are going to look like for cash out. That along with this principal and interest escrow. Um, once you get to the end of the line and you're actually closing, I think people are going to be surprised that their deal in process actually has a little less cash out than they were planning on day one. Okay. And what about supplemental rates? Have you seen any changes there? Um, supplemental rates have gone up a little. Uh, Fannie's updated their pricing over the past couple of months, so they've gone up with that. Um, but other than that, it's it's kind of following what's going on with spreads, where earlier this week they were up by 100 bips, and today they're down by 100 bips. And so it's going to be very fluid. You know, I quoted a couple supplementals earlier in the week, um, and the feedback that I got from those borrowers is, hey, you know, with how volatile things are right now, we kind of want to wait and see 
where the stabilization comes in at. And so I think that will be kind of the thought with sudden a number of our borrowers. But I will say that what I've heard on supplementals is Fannie at a time was offering some waiver or they'll give in a little here and allow you to push there. Um, and at the current time, they're kind of making a stick to the guide on supplementals. Okay. And, and I assume those interest or those reserve requirements still hold true for loan assumptions as well for those investors who may be assuming an existing loan. I would assume the same. Yes. I've not heard any differently. Okay, great. Todd, did you have a question? Yeah, when would you be able to access those reserves and in, in what situation or, or can you? Are those just going to sit in reserve and it's only in uh, under the circumstances that you were to lose the property that Fannie and Freddie would have those reserves themselves or would, would there be a situation where you could access them? So what it, it's changing daily, but what we've been told is that the purpose of the reserve and this is the principal and interest reserve is to cover the operating shortfalls and or distress of the properties not intended to be used by a borrower at their discretion. Um, the borrower would have to make a request to the lender to draw on the reserve and they would have to show the support that they're experiencing a shortfall in their net cash flow. And so it, it, when could you use it? My answer would be when you start experiencing a hit in economic and physical occupancy because of people not being able to pay their rent is my guess. Okay. So, uh, good. You would actually, you know, in a, uh, be able to access those reserve funds in order to, um, keep operating the property, making your principal and interest payments and, not um, losing the property to the lender. I mean, exactly. It's a, it, it I is think that's what they're trying to keep. Fund. I think that's the point of the reserves to keep that process from happening. Okay. Um, and then can I ask another question? I guess if, with regards to acquisitions. Right now, if you had a loan in process, and I know you have several trips, if um, the loan closes, let's say, you know, here in the next week or two, um, how are the agencies, you know, uh, how do you think they'll handle a dip in collections, you know, for, for the next month or two that's likely to happen? They haven't said specifically. Uh, what we have heard is Freddie is underwriting a little higher economic occupancy than may even be what's in place. And I think that's probably what we're going to see is we're going to get some updated guidelines as things continue to change. You know, if it's closing within the next two weeks, I would tell you, you're probably not going to be getting an updated operating statement that's going to affect you because hypothetically, hopefully your March numbers are still good um, and you shouldn't need to show April numbers for a closing in two weeks. And that's, I think, part of why they implemented this collections because they know that that hit's going to come April, May, and possibly June, um, but they, they're not going to foresee it in the next two weeks. Once we get down the line, 
and collections do dip, say in May, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the plan's going to be. I could foresee both agencies kind of right now have a minimum uh, economic vacancy that we have to underwrite at 5%. I could see that being pushed to 10% to kind of stress the fact that they understand there are people that are going to be hurting. And even if physical occupancy is there, economic occupancy may not be the same with collection or bad debt loss, as well as concessions being put in place to try and get physical occupancy up in other places. So all that to say, it's yet to be seen truly. I've heard rumors that Freddie is stressing their economic occupancy more, um, but I would be surprised if there's not something put in place to increase the minimum that we have to underwrite from 5% to 10% or so. Okay, and this is more of an opinion question too. How do you believe they'll handle it coming out of this uh, COVID-19, I guess, recession, for lack of a better term. Let's say, you know, we do have uh, dip in collections for April and May. And, you know, someone wants to come in and either refinance their property in, this summer. And, or, you know, they have the property under contract. And the uh, transaction side, just to let you know, I, I, you know, we are building in extensions to diligence periods, you know, given the situation. Um, do you believe maybe that, you know, once collections get back up to where they were previously, that they would be willing to fund that loan? Um, you know, uh, assuming the interest rates stay approximately the same. Uh, or are they going to require a, a trailing three months like they have historically? Again, this is more of an opinion question. Yeah, um, I think <clears throat> to answer your question, the closest um, tragedy that we've seen that we could compare it to in Texas is probably Harvey. And coming out of Harvey, the way that the agencies looked at deals was, okay, have you recovered you have gotten back up to where your historical numbers have been. We don't want to just use 30 days. We want to show that this is sustained. So I think they would either say, come back to us in another 30 days, or we're going to underwrite to a trailing six or a trailing 12 to kind of take out the lumpiness from the COVID-19 drop in collections. I think they're going to be less likely to underwrite on a trailing one which is similar to what we saw with Harvey, because what you saw after Harvey is properties got impacted immediately, but they rebounded really quickly above what their historical numbers were. And so they had properties that were operating 110% compared to what they had been doing historically. And so Fannie's saying, look, we've seen this before. We know that you're going to stabilize and come back down to your normal operating level. But right now there are so many apartments that are not operating at that level. And that may be a bad comparison because you had apartments that were damaged. Um, and here you're not having the damage you're dealing with, but there may be some tenant mobility. Um, so I would say, I think they're going to probably look at your one stabilized month and ask that you use a trailing six or a trailing 12 month, as opposed to a trailing three, where you really get hit with those two big dips in collections. 
So I don't think they're going to hit you with the most aggressive um, and make you use the two months of collections that were negative from COVID and the one month recovered. But I also don't think they're going to give you the just one month recovered and annualize it for 12. I think they'll probably want you to include the dip in collections. Um, but trend it over your past six or 12 months so you can show you have a stabilized property that's operated well for 10 of the last 12 months. Okay, so it sounds like proceeds are going to be impacted um, due to the dip in operations, uh, but to minimize it, they're going to, like you said, either underwrite a trailing 12 or a trailing six, kind of look at what the property looked like as stable, um, but those you know, two or three months of down collections will be underwritten. I would, I would be surprised if they did not. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Trip. What about servicing on the servicing side? So there's been a lot of talk about forbearance. What kind of guidance has been recently put out uh, or have you seen, is this still at a dust level or has it been elevated to the agencies? Uh. To my knowledge, we have the ability to grant forbearance. Um, for anyone looking for forbearance, I would tell them to check with their asset manager to see what the process looks like. I know that it's going to require the halt of evictions of anybody that's affected by COVID-19 and allow anybody that has had any negative effect be allowed to pay off their rent over the next six months, I believe they've said. Um, but I would say we have the ability to grant it is what I've been told. And that if there's any questions for borrowers to go and check with their asset managers, because the asset managers will want to have a specific reason to grant it, obviously. All right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion right now. Is it is it worth to take it? And they have until April 10th to, I guess, submit for forbearance. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit through the process and what that looks like. But at least from what I'm hearing just out with uh, different investors, it's like we don't know what April collections uh, are going to look like until it actually happens. And then we have only until the 10th. Uh, we're, so we'll have to make a quick decision. There's a lot of paperwork and, and information to push through. And then some, I, you know, I hear talking about forbearances being um, having a negative effect on their properties in the future. If the tenants um, happen to hear about it or think that there's no evictions for a 12 month period, um, if they take that forbearance, uh, that could have have a negative effect in the future uh, with non-payment or, or squatters or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure about the 10th of April as a date. I know that what we've stated is borrowers have between April 1st and August 1st to commence the forbearance agreement. Um, so that date, I'm not sure where it's set. Um, our forbearance generally will be a 90 day period during which the borrower will not be obligated to pay principal interest or escrows. And then your comment about tenants getting wind of it. I'm not sure how you would stop that. I would say most, uh, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, that would have to be something I would discuss with our asset managers to see what they've said 
when they've gotten that question in passing because I've I've not given thought to that. Um, I own some properties, and I think it's unlikely that the uh, tenants would have direct knowledge of any application for forbearance on any one specific property. They might just hear generally that it's out there, you know, watching the news. Um, but uh, that my bigger concern, Mark, would be, you know, the uh, them hearing about uh, stopping the moratorium on evictions and foreclosures. And I think a lot of renters are, are just hearing that. And, um, you know, hopefully this is the case, but, you know, you'll have some bad actors that might try to take advantage of that. And I think there's a misunderstanding uh, where, you know, we, we definitely want to work with our residents uh, and help them. If there is a hardship due to COVID-19, you know, they lose their job, they're furloughed, um, you know, not able to make rent for some reason, though, be a forgiveness plan or a uh, deferment plan. Uh, but evictions will move forward uh, once the courts open again. Uh, we have, for instance, some folks that we had already started the eviction process on and, you know, we had um, filed the writ and everything and we're ready to go. And then, you know, the day of that, you know, we literally could have uh, move forward with the eviction, um, you know, the announcement was made. And so now someone who has not been paying rent for, you know, two or three months uh, and living on the property uh, can stay there another two or three months. <laughs> uh, and, and it had nothing to do with, you know, uh, the, the situation that we're in with COVID-19. So, uh, you know, there's no doubt that owners will suffer some hardships uh, you know, unintended consequences uh, from trying to protect the public in general and some bad actors taking advantage of that. What about the business loans? Can property owners take the business loans? Have you thought about that? I, I wonder if, and if so, is there a case between, you know, forbearance or taking the business loan? Uh, yeah, I have thought about it a little. Um, you know, I, what Mark's referring to is, uh, there is right now proposed a SBA loan for those who do not uh, lay off or terminate any employees, any small businesses. Uh, you can access up to $10 million and uh, the loan uh, will supposedly be forgivable, you know, down the road. Uh, you have to apply for it. It's first come first serve. Uh, I have thought about it with the properties uh, because you know, uh, with our brokerage firm, I'm proud to say that, um, you know, we continue to uh, keep everyone on staff. Uh, we have, you know, uh, said, hey, everyone still has a job. We have a rainy day fund. We don't carry a lot of debt and, you know, uh, it's raining. So time to tap the fund. Uh, <laughs> so everyone still has a job and we run our multifamily properties much the same way. Uh, we do tend to keep um, probably more capital than the average investor in our operating accounts. So, um, you know, could we uh, benefit from being responsible owners? I, I hope so. Um, but I, I don't know the answer to that. If um, there's some sort of, uh, if you could tap into an SBA loan on a 
a piece of commercial real estate or the business of management would have to be separate uh, because the management companies uh, pay those employees and you're paying the management company. And even though the um, payroll is coming out of that operating account, those are not your employees. So I, I would think there would be some uh, loopholes to jump through in order to access that SBA loan. Okay. Well, let's shift over to the sales side of the house. And Todd, you and I talked a little bit about, uh, maybe we can share some stories, um, but it just really interested to hear what's, what's going on in the sales, uh, both from seller perspective, buyer perspective, um, you know, uh, contracts, negotiations, and things of that sort. So what are you seeing right now? Um, and what are you hearing from your clients on the sales side? Um, so there would be, I guess we could tranche it out into, you know, escrows, uh, you know, anything that was, um, you know, near the finish line, kind of at the beginning of the escrow process and then properties, um, currently current listings being marketed for sale and those that were going to be brought to market, uh, in the near future. So starting from the end, I guess there, or the beginning, depending on how you look at it, um, properties that we listed um, very recently that we were going to bring to market uh, where we were working on the offering memorandums, uh, those have largely been put on hold. Uh, I think, you know, people are, are going to look for clarity and we'll probably have a little bit of clarity on collections come April 10th, um, is what I'm saying, because, you know, I don't think the, the way the month lays out in April, um, you know, Friday is the third and usually rents due sometime between the first and the third, but, uh, depending on what kind of property you own, you know, collections generally will come in within those for that first week or two. So I think we'll have our answer as to who's going to pay and who's not by April 10th. Um, at that point, you know, we'll have to make an assessment of, Hey, how are things looking? If everything still looks positive and to trips point, you know, spreads come in, interest rates are at a historic low knock on wood, uh, then, you know, it might be a great time to come to market because, you know, you've proven you've got a resident base, you did a good job screening and, you know, you, um, you know, could even, it, it would be an advantage. I would think of looking at a property that had uh, healthy collections coming out of this situation where you'd be like, Hey, this is a, you know, pretty recession proof investment. And people might look at that as, as more valuable given where we're at right now. So we'll just have to kind of, we're in wait and see mode. Um, we're going to hold off on those. Generally speaking, um, you know, we've advised the investors to go ahead and maybe do some of the beautification projects uh, that they were thinking about doing, you know, prior to bringing it to market on one of our listings, you know, they're going to seal the parking lot and strike, you know, make it look a little better and, you know, really step up the landscaping, you know, plant the spring flowers, um, you know, uh, do a little uh, touch up on the signage, that sort of thing. Um, you know, really make the curb appeal pop. So, uh, you know, we're holding off on the pro professional photos now until that happens. Um, and then, you know, um, 
interestingly enough, you know, uh, coming into, you know, properties that we currently have on the market is, is the next tranche, I guess we could discuss. Uh, some of those, I mean, it just depends on how well they're received or not and where they're at in that marketing process. I know, Mark, you had a property that had a call for offers uh, come up. You know, uh, uh, I think the best and final uh, was, you know, about a week before this really hit and, you know, had some great offers and, you know, really um, actually achieved, you know, more than seller's expectations. Uh, you know, sounds like uh, you're able to, you know, keep the buyer in and interested. Um, it's really negotiating the contract at this point in the terms, I think, uh, pricing. Uh, we haven't seen change much, um, you know, just assuming operations remain the same. But, you know, with all that said, again, we're in wait and see mode where we're doing collections land, you know, uh, post-April. And, you know, I think if those the prices remain the same, you're just going to have to build in extensions to diligence period. Um, we're entering into a contract right now on a property in Fort Worth that uh, had actually, um, you know, evaporated, I guess, during the good time. We were about to sign a contract uh, about the first of the year uh, with the seller and the buyer. And... Uh, the seller decided, ah, you know, I'm going to go ahead and take care of all the deferred maintenance myself instead of discounting it. Maybe I'll get a higher price later. So change their mind on the sale. And uh, the buyer came back actually uh, about a week ago and said, hey, we'd still be interested at that price that we offered. You know, maybe uh, the current climate has changed the seller's mind. And sure enough, it did. Uh, so we're entering into that contract, but we have added extensions for the diligence period. We do have non-refundable earnest money and a very significant amount, a six-figure amount of non-refundable earnest money on this. They, you know, the seller's concern was like, look, anyone can make an offer right now, but surety of closing. And, you know, the buyer is very strong, said, hey, we can, you know, handle taking it down all cash if necessary. Um, we're probably going to go after a loan and we know all bridge lenders are kind of out of the game right now, but I'm sure we could reach out to someone if we wanted a 50% loan to value and they'd make it to us a pretty safe loan. Um, but we need to add these extensions into the diligence because we don't know when we're going to be able to get an appraiser out there, you know, to inspect the units and when we're going to be able to, to access all the units for all the third party reports and for their own good. You know, they, they would like to get in more units than they had prior to, now, fortunately, we had an access agreement uh, signed for January. So they got through a significant amount of the property and they're comfortable moving forward. But that, and that's not the reason they're asking for the extensions on the diligence. It's really, you know, if no fault of their own, again, the appraiser can't access it. The third party inspectors can't access it. So that's, you know, tranche number two, uh, how we're seeing deals play out. It's very, very fluid. Uh, every deal is unique. You can't, there's not a one size fits all. Um, you know, we're hearing force majeure clauses added uh, to to contracts, which basically, you know, if someone is not able to fulfill a contract at no fault of their own, that they will be released from it uh, without any damage, you know, i.e. losing their earnest money. So uh, we, we've even uh, heard of a buyer on about a $40 million deal pay $50,000 additional 
to the seller in order to be able to add that clause mid-contract because you know they they were under contract with non-refundable interest money and it's a very desirable asset. Uh, but as an insurance policy, they thought fifty thousand dollars insurance to add a force majeure clause was cheap, and um, you know especially given that they can add, just add it onto the purchase price and finance it. So uh, seeing unique stuff like that. Uh, you know, like I said, just very fluid. I think you've got to be open, uh, you know, have a good attorney and, you know, just, just be good at negotiating and understanding the deal, uh, on a big picture basis. Um, you know, we're trying to, it's a win-win. Hey, what, you know, what can we do, you know, to protect the buyer and what can we do to deliver that surety of closing to the seller? Uh, that is a uh, the tightrope we're walking, and you know as long as I, I think everyone's going in with the spirit of a of a win win, and uh, you know the seller's reasonable, they understand where the buyer's coming from, and vice versa, you'll still have plenty of transactions going forward. Um, so I think that kind of addressed both in escrow and you know, going under contract type properties. And then, you know, anything close to the finish line, we're okay. Um, there's not much to worry about there. You know, uh, I think there is for the purchaser, you know, with April collections being down, what we're seeing is um, investors uh, doing an additional capital raise for their rainy day fund. And I think, you know, obviously Fannie and Freddie uh, would like that now as well uh, with their, <laughs> from the sounds of it, what Tripp said, um, with their, you know, uh, principal and interest reserve that they'll be requiring. And by the way, those aren't unusual. You know, uh, we've purchased a property out in a, you know, secondary slash tertiary market, probably somewhere right in between there. And our bank uh, at the time, we went ahead and did a bank loan because we wanted to make some improvements to the property and then, you know, uh, refi with one of the agencies, one of the agency lenders. Um, you know, they, they had us put up 12 months principal and interest. Uh, so I'm hearing from brokers and people that haven't been around for a long time, like, wow, you know, this is really, um, this is going to be a real burden. This is going to be a real problem. You know, I, I can't believe this. It's, you know, to, it sounded like from what Tripp was saying, you'll be able to take that money out of the, um, you know, after 12 to 36 months, you know, you, you hopefully will be able to access that uh, reserve account as long as your operations are good. So, you know, you're, you're putting money in the bank for a rainy day fund. Um, I think people understand that at this point. And uh, like I said, it's not unusual uh, going back to when, you know, I, I, I'm going to say like pre 2016, 15, a lot of this stuff was very normal. Um, we've been in a very hot market here over the last, you know, five, six years. So that uh, has become the new normal. And I think things will shift back to the old normal where you're going to have due diligence contingencies. You're going to have financing contingencies to these contracts. The earnest money will be refundable for 30 to 45 days. Um, you know, that's it's going to be for a while. And that's the way it was forever. You know, like I said, I've been doing it for, 20 years. And I know well before my time, that's just the way it was, you know, uh, this non-refundable earnest money environment, 
that people think is normal because it's been going on for four or five years. Um, it just wasn't. So it's, it's excellent. You know, it's great. We love the surety of closing. Uh, we love the commitment on the deals and, uh, where, uh, I think it, it, I started seeing this non-refundable earnest money offers when it got competitive coming out of the recession to buy these distressed assets that were selling for, you know, pennies on the dollar. And we just had a lot of interest. And, you know, that, that's where I really saw people, they, they stopped pricing assets um, because we didn't want to set a ceiling. And we didn't know where the ceiling was, quite frankly. It was very hard to value properties back then when they're not cash flow positive. And, you know, you can underwrite them on a performa basis as in the current economic environment, what should the average occupancy be? What should the average rent be? And then you discount it for the deferred maintenance. And the art of underwriting the deal at that point is, you know, what did you believe the discount deferred maintenance was? And it varied greatly from investor to investor. And it's still true to this day. Um, but, you know, we didn't want to... Um, you know, set a ceiling, if you will, on the price. And uh, they stopped pricing assets. People would, you know, make um, the the top offer wouldn't win. It's a combination of price, firms, and qualification of the buyer. And the lenders during the recession wanted surety of closing. Generally speaking, they wanted surety of closing more than anything, especially for a distressed asset that was not cash flowing. Now, if they took back a property, it was operating fine and it was cash flow positive. It was a nice property. They'd be happy sitting on it for a little while. Um, you know, it wasn't negatively impacting, you know, it wasn't losing value. It wasn't negatively impacting their balance sheet. Um, but uh, yeah, what, you know, that's kind of where it all started. And then I think it just kind of became the norm. It just carried forward um, really coming out of the recession, that technique, people started employing it on, um, you know, a, a, I guess conventional sale, not a uh, lender-owned asset or distressed sale. So I think things will go back to the way they were, at least for a little while, and people have to get used to that. It's going to be difficult because, you know, uh, the current owners who bought under those onerous terms kind of expect those same terms from the buyers when they go to sell it, and you're going to feel that pushback from them about, well, you know, when I bought it, I had to offer non-refundable earnest money and I had to close in a short period of time. And, you know, I had to overpay, you know, why can't you make that happen now? I can hear it already as a broker. <laughs> and, you know, it's just the environment's changed and it'll be an education process. Great. All right. Well, we're hitting close to the end of our time limit. So any closing remarks? Um, you know, I'll, I'll go first. If, um, this trip does not want to, uh, you know, I think it's, an, this is an opportunity. Uh, people will always need a place to live and multifamily will remain one of the safest real estate asset classes for many years to come. Um, you know, Dallas was, uh, but prior to this situation, Dallas was this city, Dallas-Fort Worth, I should say, the metropolitan area was um, voted as the best place to be should another recession come. Um, you know, I guess the most recession-resistant 
metropolitan area and multifamily is one of the mo- is the most recession resistant um, asset classes. So, you know, we're in a good place, you know, all investing in good product and working with, um, you know, uh, uh, an asset class that, you know, couldn't be better to work with given the cir- circumstances. Um, I've seen fortune made in a down economy. So, you know, stay with it. Um, invest in yourself, educate during this time, you know, you've got downtime, there's time to take care of those projects that you've been putting on the back burner for a long time. Um, you know, maybe go out and take that, uh, CCIN class or educate yourself on something that you haven't had time to do before. Um, labor will likely get cheaper. I did want to throw this out there, uh, that, I was looking at renovating a home we bought next to one of our apartment complexes to kind of do an assemblage and wanted to, you know, make some money. I have to do a complete renovation. That um, contractor came back to me this week and said, Hey, to keep my guys busy, you know, I'll offer you a, uh, what amounted to almost a 20% discount on his previous bid. So I think people are forgetting that, you know, this will be a good time to, um, you know, expenses will come down. Um, you know, you'll have higher quality employees uh, that will be working for less. So, um, you know, there, there's some advantages to a down economy. Um, and materials could get more affordable with less demand once building and building and renovations slow down, you know, less demand, uh, lower the price. And, you know, protect yourself, protect your psyche, stay informed, don't watch too much news. Um, you know, that's... Uh, <laughs> That'll get you down after a while. Uh, get work done. Do the right thing. You know, be compassionate. Yeah, and I think I'll uh, I'll echo what Todd said before his closing remarks. In that, I think people are going to come in and say, "Hey, we had three weeks where we were getting interest rate quotes at three point one five, three point two five, three point three percent. What's going on? Are they trying to completely halt lending business?" Uh, I think the answer to that is it's not a halt of business. I think it's more of a return to normalcy for the period. I think we had a really good run for five or six years, and now we're going back to we're cautiously optimistic that this is going to be a short-term item, and because of that, we're going to require this debt service escrow at close. You will be able to draw on it if you can show you hit your 125, and you will be giving it back or have access to it uh, no more than 36 months. Um, So stay positive, uh, remain courteous as Todd said, and I think Greystone can help you out in whatever mortgage or uh, sales advisory you're looking for. We have Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD, Bridge, and CMBS options to uh, fill any need you may have. Feel free to reach out to myself, Todd, or Mark, I think we can get you taken care of in this time. Great. And and just uh, real quick to contact either Trip, Todd, or myself. Trip can be reached probably best via email at trip.going at grayco.com. That's T R I P dot G O I N G at G R E Y C O dot com. And Todd at Todd.franks at graystoneisg.com. That's T-O-D-D dot Franks, F-R-A-N-K-S at graystoneisg.com, which stands for Investment Sales Group. 
Uh, and my email is mark.allen at Greystone ISG. And I'll also put that in the show notes. Guys, thanks so much for joining the show. I appreciate the discussion. A lot of good insight, both on the lending um, and sales side. And I uh, look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for the opportunity, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate the opportunity. Take care.